All right, let's jump into it, eh? Okay. So I'll just review last week. So we were, we're covering the laws of Bain and Lechavero. We finished off Bain Adam Laatzmo. And yeah, I put forward to I put forward to you guys the idea that Bain Adam Lechavero was infinitely complex. That's the Ramban's commentary in the Chumash. And that it can't be fully elaborated. And so what ends up happening is we have certain derises, you know, Avis, uh, you know, Avis Reim, Halakta Bedrachov, these are these are derises that obligate us to, to be good with other people. What Chazal did is they doubled back and made a whole bunch of derabunnins outlining, it was almost like they're giving like educated suggestions of how you fulfill those derises. It's very funny. You don't have, you don't have anything comparable in halacha like this. So there's an interesting list of derabunnins. Bikr Cholim, Afnasis Kala, and Yichum Those are the derabundance that Chazal created out of this deraisa. Now what's really interesting is that, you know, whenever you see a list in Mishnayas anywhere, the, the first question you have to ask is, what's the title of the list? Every list in Chazal has a title. Like a title of a book. And the lists are like the chapters. So looking at this list... Well, well, it's kind of like is that the instruction Chazal is giving is you have, to follow, you have to follow the people in your life. You have to follow them from the cradle to the grave. Why? When, when mom goes into labor. It's a pivotal moment in a person's life when they're going to be... They, 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 it's not just bar about mitzvah, but they became adult enough to take responsibility for other people. It's a reinvention of themselves. That's actually the uh, different midrashim say actually like one's one's averas are, are forgiven on the day they get married, and it's not magic. It's not just because ha ha time to get married clean slate, but it's such a such a big deal that you are t- gonna you just automatically any normal person would take this moment so seriously that they're taking on the responsibility of being with another human being. Of course they're going to do tshuva so dramatically so they become a new human being. And yichum death. From cradle to grave. That's our that's that's our basic obligation to everyone else in our lives is to walk with them on that journey. And it's not a journey we just do willy nilly, but we have two very important caveats to that. It has to be based on the on the pasuk vasita hayashar vahatov. It has to be good in the eyes of God, and it has to be good in the eyes of man. And it's not just some sort of like hedonistic, you know, whatever makes people happy. You know, that, that's not it. You know, that, that being, being, taking responsibility for other people means you have to get it right. And that there's going to be you know, timelessly correct principles and values to take on in order to take care of somebody else. What's the um, title of this, like, lesson? I don't know yet. I usually title them after I've given them... <laughs> oh, okay. I think it makes me like know what to expect. Wait, you said taking responsibility for other people. That it's not just it's not just whatever people like. You know, it's you know, Bainalchavero does not mean if the person wants a candy bar, well of course you give them a candy bar. It's it's your it's not that you're making other people happy. It's that you're taking responsibility for other people's lives, and that's incredibly different. You're not satisfying people. 
Because a lot of times you hear, you know, people will throw around, you know, oh, you're, you know, they'll make the accusation, you're just being rude, beta mechavero, derech eretz, derech eretz, derech eretz. And, well, there is a derech eretz, and that, you know, it's, it's something, something along the lines of, you know, there are, you know, there are societal assumptions, and societies are different, but, like, the fundamental thread that runs through those differences, let's say, is this idea of, no, no, you're not just making people happy. You're, 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 you're taking responsibility for them. And sometimes that means walking away. So that's one caveat to this. The other is that it's, it's, taking, it's, it's, it's assuming that people are striving to be better. You don't just placate people, give them what they want. Um, you always have to kind of have in mind what you're doing. How is this going to lead them to being better on a basic level? So those are the caveats. It's not, not just making people happy. Okay. Wait, why do you want to assume that people are trying to make themselves better? Because we are. I know, but why? I take it as axiomatic. Oh, I'm, you're saying naturally people do. Oh, I think so. I mean, I mean that 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 is the struggle. I mean, that's the fundamental difference between mental health and not being mentally healthy. Is like we're we're designed to explore, and if you're not, you, the only way you can explore is taking to, you know risking your safety, risking pushing pushing your comfort zone. Um, and, well, if you're not doing that, I mean, that's, that's just being avoidant. Like, being avoidant, running away from fear is what makes fear harmful to people. So it's like everyone, ha everyone is, and if they're not, they're hurting themselves. It's not like on a biological level. So you're saying it's bad not to question things? It's bad not to question things, yes. I would, I would definitely sign on to that one. Okay. Um... Okay, so I want to push forward, but we, we, we covered this idea of, of, you know, good in the eyes of Hashem um, as being received knowledge. And there were two types, chukim, and knowledge you would need more than a lifetime to discover. Those are the two categories I offered you guys. So today what we're going to do is we're going to push forward and talk about what the function of good in the eyes of Hashem is. What does it do? Now, I'm not giving the purpose of the mitzvah. I'm not giving, you know, this is its ultimate spiritual meaning. I am not doing that. I am being a good behavioralist, and I'm only describing, well, if you do X, what does it functionally do in the world? What's its outcome? So this is, like, not the whole picture, but this is an important picture. What something gives birth to, you know, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. You know what I'm saying? So I think the two, the two functions of good in the eyes of Hashem, what that, what that functionally enables is stability in our lives, the ability for us to be individuals and stand up against societal pressures. Wait, could you repeat the second one? That's the first one. Oh. Stability. Enables us to be individuals, to stand up against society. And the second function it has is it enables us to trust other people. That 
it enables us to be willing to, to literally bind our lives to another human being's life. And stability lets us trust people? Both of these are, are well, I mean, no. I mean, what are you numbers for, like, mm -hmm. one and two, one and two of what? The function of in the eyes of Hashem. What does in the eyes of Hashem mean? What does being good in the eyes of Hashem do for us? Is what I'm what so I'm you, answering. So you just gave two. Right? Two things, yeah. Gives us stability and enables us to trust other people. The stability allows us to be individuals with other people. And the trust enables us to join groups to stop being individuals. So we have this paradox. If you guys have noticed, I like paradoxes. That's kind of my thing. Okay. So let's unpack what is, what is, what, how, how, does, how does keeping in mind what Hashem thinks is good, how does that give us stability in how we relate to other people? How does that enable us to be good to other people? So I touched a little bit about that already is, well, you know, in life we do confront irritating people, you know? We do that all the time, you know, like no matter how likable you are, there's always going to be that one person who really hates your guts, no matter how hard you try. That's a part of reality. And giving, giving into that makes it easier to deal with those people, but it challenges, it challenges you in, in as far as are you going to hold on to what you believe is fundamentally good? You know, on a large scale example of this, do you ever guys? Do you guys hear of the Milgram experiments? Okay. Milgram. The Milgram was a researcher. It was after World War II, and different social psychologists were trying to grapple with like how was it a whole country could ex could try and exterminate a whole other group of people? Like where did that one come from? So what Milgram did was he he put to he what he what his research showed is that people are very willing to listen to authority and they're going to not question it. They're going to they're going to give a lot of power to other people as long as you wear a lab coat. And the way he set up his experiment is, you know, he would bring people off the street, they'd come in and say, "Okay, well, we have this we want to do this this research on memory." And there's someone in another room and they're hooked up to uh, to electrodes and, you know, if and their job is they're going to have to repeat something they needed to memorize. And when they mess up, you electrocute them. That's your job. And there was a dial right in front of the participant. And it was, it was blatantly obvious like that it was approaching every time you shock the person, the level of electricity was reaching lethal levels. Like they had like skull and crossbones or like, you know, they did different things to like you know, test it out or like, you know, do not shock person, risk of death. You know, it was, it was in front of the person that they're going to cause another person to die. Now, there was no one in another room and there was an actor who whenever, you know, the button was pushed, he would scream and that was his job and, you know, they were having laughs in the other room. But what came out of the experiment was people will, people will follow orders. They want to satisfy experts. They want to satisfy people who they think are better than them. And they'll give up their values. They'll end up killing people. People want to sacrifice their values for people like them? Yeah. That, they'll be, that they'll belong, ultimately. That's how important belonging is to people. 
And what they did notice, the reason why I bring this up, is that they, um, they did find that people who were more religious um, were less susceptible to ending up killing people, although they did. And I don't want to paint a rosy image, you know. But, less susceptible? I mean, they were less likely to do it. Like, the, the more religious you were... But they still did it. N not as likely. Yeah, we're playing with statistics now, but yeah, they weren't as likely to, to go forward and do it. And what this, what this experiment illustrates and other research in, in moral psychology shows is that what one thing that religion does is it, it does increase love of people that belong to your group. And it protects you from hating people who are outside your group. And the reason is, is because religion gives you a map of meaning. It, 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 allows you to, it allows you to, in a certain respect, stay safe. Because the way fear works, this is really, I thought this was pretty cool. There's no, there's no uh, on button to fear. Because fear is always on. The way that the limbic system, which governs fear response, the way that works, is it suppresses fear, but it's like your starting position is to be afraid. You know, the, the original, the, the, the first behavioral uh, psychologist, they thought, no, well, you could stimulate fear. If you, if you put something scary in front of a mouse, he'll freak out. But no, the way fear works is whenever you're confronted with something unknown, you automatically stop suppressing fear. And as you explore that unknown thing, well, then fear is reduced. Well, the nasty thing about fear is the more that you're afraid of something, the, the less likely it is you're going to catch detail. Um, you know, we talked about it in the right hemisphere of the brain. It looks for broad, holistic patterns. So you're, not, you're going to miss all the detail, and you're trying to, like, quickly assess what's in front of you to survive, essentially. So you miss a lot. So wouldn't it be really great if there was some way of staying in known territory? Well, that's what halacha does. It, that having that map of meaning allows a person to be confronted by the unknown. But you end up being able to have one leg still in the world of the known. How do you behave? That's, that's more or less what we do when we're trying to figure out, well, how do I handle something that's, that's causing me fear? How do I behave? What do I do? Physically, what do you do? Well, that's what halacha provides. It provides an answer of what to do. So when you're confronted by fear, when you're confronted by, uh, you know, this sort of, you know, the, the, the scary man in the white lab coat telling you to execute somebody, your fear response is much less, and you're better able to freely choose what to do. It's your not, fear response is much less when you're religious? Is that what you're saying? It's much less when it, when you'll need two parts. It's not just being religious, although that helps, but it's knowing what to do in unknown situations. Because not every religion is going to tell you what to do. You know, Christianity doesn't tell you what to do. Christianity says, suffer living, and then you get, the, then you get a portion of the world to come, as long as you believe in Jesus. It'll sort of be sorted out, don't worry. 
That helps a little bit, but knowing what to do helps you not be afraid. You kind of have this with uh, PTSD, you know, complex trauma. You know, something happens in a person's life which is completely unknown to them. It's like it just shocks them out of their reality. And usually they start out with a fairly simplistic worldview. The world is good and I'm a good person. And all of a sudden something horrendous happens and they learn they did something bad. Maybe they're not such a good person. Or maybe the world is not so good. And it's it, because they only have black and white, good and bad, the moment that's challenged, it destroys their world. You have to then, in a literal sense, rebuild everything you've ever experienced. Because that one moment, it's not just you had a nice life and all of a sudden that one moment just popped up and that's hard, it's hard enough. You know, if that was the case, it's hard enough. But it's usually that one thing makes you question everything that's come before. How could it be I thought the world was good? How could it be that I thought I was good? How did I end up here? Who am I? All of a sudden, when you're confronted with, I mean, for lack of a better term, pure evil, you end up not knowing who you are. That's the scariest thing imaginable. That's if you don't have religion to ground you? Yes. But would you say that people in the Holocaust that questioned just didn't have that strong of a, of a foundation to begin with? Or it was just circumstances that because it was such an unthinkable thing that was happening to them that it really caused people to kind of... Well, I'm sure both, yeah. It would happen, and this is something that Viktor Frankl, I mentioned him in the first mm -hmm. class, that he, that he, that he um, testified to is that the people who had meaning in their life, people who did more or less, you know, have some sort of moral compass to guide them, um, they survived. And people who didn't have that map of meaning were less likely to survive. Okay. So that's stability. Knowledge of halakha grounds us and allows us to stand, keeps one foot in the known world we occupy, and allows us to step into the unknown. This, by the way, is, um, I mentioned this in my last class, but you know, it's, I didn't, it's, worth, it's worth repeating. This is, this is the same idea why a person should not learn Kabbalah until they've learned all of, all of Shas, all of Halakha. Kabbalah is, is jumping into the unknown. It is incredibly abstract. That's, that, there's nothing more unknown than Kabbalistic ideas. And, well, if you're going to do that without a firm basis of Halakha under your belt, you do it at your own peril. It will either, best case scenario is it will make you weird. <laughs> Worst case scenario is it will destroy you. And I've seen both. So, usually, what people do nowadays when they teach Kabbalah, they're not really teaching Kabbalah. It's like it's well, it's, it's a it's and and gone through and gone through shas, gone through halacha. You have a firm base. You have a firm you have firm ground in reality in the known. So you it, it like it's like a, a a lifeline that keeps you from just floating away into the, the mystical realms of who knows what. I mean, this is also this the idea of the the four chachamim who went into pardes, you know. Three of them, what was it, one, one committed suicide, one became an apichorus, and one went crazy. And these were Tanayim. These were Chazal. That's what Kabbalah does to you if you don't have a firm lifeline to the known. It was only Rebbe Akiva who was able to make it out alive. I've been playing around with this idea, and I, I, I don't know where I'm going to go with it, but I, I think it's kind of 
it gives me pause to say only three of them died because Rabbi Kiva's story ends rather tragically that when the Romans outlawed teaching Torah, his, his, his connection to Torah was so strong, you know, the, the, his life experiences, which included going through parties, what that led him to was sacrificing his life. So it's like, did anybody really make it out alive going through parties? But man, if you're going to go out, that's one really great way to go out. You know, that's sacrifice for a greater good. Like, that's pretty good. Kiddush Hashem, you know, I wouldn't turn that one down. You know, so that's a, it's a, a challenge. Are there a lot of people that practice Kabbalah or learn Kabbalah, like, truly, that are, like, that aren't absolutely insane? Yeah, and they don't teach it. Because fear of... Because it'll make other people... Because it's us, sir. It's forbidden. Right, exactly. Yeah. So whenever you hear someone teaching Kabbalah, like, you know, it's okay, like they're, they're not a real Kabbalist. It's like, okay, that's yeah, funny. Like, there was a, a Kabbalah had, class last year. Yeah, we had a Kabbalah class mm-hmm. about, about, um, about being possessed and how to exorcise a demon and... And, and how 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 you become susceptible to possession, which is like yeah. one of them is you, if you don't say you don't brothos. say brothos. Oh, so then everyone's like, oh my god, we're gonna be possessed. So everyone's or like, like it more like Tuesdays and something. Right? I think it's Shabbos. Or, yeah, Fridays. Ka- Kabbalah cannot be used as a threat. I don't think. Pure, I, don't, I don't care. Like, if, like I don't care what about like that's da- <laughs> dangerous. Like all right, all right, whatever. Like, so then where does that come from if it's not brought, if no one's allowed, if it's like such a hard thing to teach? Yeah, if it's, well, what, I'm, what I'm saying, yeah, what I'm saying is what, what usually what people do is they're not really teaching Kabbalah. Like they do it as like a, to attract interest to the mm. class. I mean, I feel like there's different levels. Like, also, you know, Kabbalah light, you know, keeping it, keeping it more superficial. <laughs> you can talk about the 10... Spirot, for example, like that's not so deep, but it's Kabbalah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Read, read the Ramban's introduction to the Chumash and get back to me. Yeah? Okay. So, number two. The second function of being good in the eyes of Hashem was it enables trust. Now, I wanted to kind of use as a, as a foil, you know, the, the, to, to bounce this idea off of, are the new atheists... You know, people like, you guys, you've heard of Richard Dawkins and um, uh, Sam Harris, people like this. They're popular, popular authors, popular, uh, uh, popular uh, biologist, and I think he's a computer scientist, if I'm not mistaken. But, like, he's, a, he's really, he's a knowledgeable guy, Sam Harris. They're, they basically put that, Richard Dawkins does it best in his book, The God Delusion, where he basically describes religion as a parasite. He, he says it's an evolutionarily-based uh, parasitic uh, malfunction. That's, nice. that's a quote. <laughs> nice. Um, he says that you know, it's, it's a bunch of irrational rituals that are costly, they're inefficient, and because they're inefficient and cost loads of people money and don't make sense, they are irrational, and that's, that's why they're More parasitic. Well, I mean, he is, he is one of the premier bio, uh, evolutionary biologists that is alive today, you know. I mean, he's not a dumb guy, but yeah. a very... So tru- I, know that's I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to make like a... I'm not making a character attack because it's not fair to do that. Like, if an idea is good, it doesn't matter who said it. At the same time, ideas come from people that have a certain lens. Mm-hmm. And he had a very hard background. So it's, yeah. something, to, it's something to... Okay, listen... 
Listen to an argument, but also take that into account. But again, not a character assassination. That's not my point. But, well, you know, very, very interesting idea, um, but it's not true. Moral psychologists like Schweder or uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt, I mentioned him a, a little while back, um, show, well, that's just simply not true. And that, in fact, what, what functionally speaking, what religion does is it enables trust. It gets around what they call the free rider problem. Well, the free rider problem is basically, you know, people work together in groups and, you know, everybody pitches in and, you know, helps out. And there's always, like, that one guy who doesn't. You know, whenever you do, like, a, you know, in school when you would, you know, uh, do a paper with a group, there was always that one guy who, like, let me know when it's done. Put my name on it. Put my name on it. Well, that's the fr he's a free rider. That would be who we're talking about. Um, and it's incredibly costly that, you know, the, the use of goods and services everybody else creates, well, the free riders use. And they don't use it so nicely. And it's a misuse of public property. It's very costly. So, well, how do you get around the free rider problem? How, how do you who are, convince who are the free riders in this scenario? people who are, are not contributing to the greater good of society? Which is religion? Or no, no, I'm just saying an individual. I'm saying, what, I, what, I, what I'm explaining is how religion actually solves this problem. Okay. Because what ends up happening is well, as a nice, again, this is not the purpose of religion, but this is a function that it, it allows to come about, is that it enables trust between people. The fact that we, we are on a shared journey, that there's a common goal that we all belong to, um, what that does is it, it minimizes our individual self. We're a part of a greater good. And it just makes, it makes um, life just way less of a problem having to worry about free riders because, well, they're much more likely to join the group. It's something worth joining. And uh, it's, yeah, a good example of this would be the, the Jews in the diamond business. If you look at all other diamond dealers around the world, they have incredible overhead. They invest lots of money making sure that the diamonds aren't stolen, it gets to where they need to get to. That's a big waste of money. But the, the Jewish diamond dealers, well, we're all Jewish, we all kind of trust each other, we all know God's watching, and they're just less likely to steal, by a lot less likely to steal. Um, so religion has this, has this binding effect that it offers. Um, and there's a lot of research that shows across the board that, re that religion enables better neighborhoods, better citizens, people who are more generous with their time, people who are more generous with their money, people who are more active in community life. It makes people want to invest in other people because it's easier for them to have empathy for others. They see themselves in the other person and vice versa. So it's like, it's not just a bad idea. It's a very bad idea, these new atheists, that it's a parasite and waste money. It's like, no, like, you know, fair enough, you're smart, but guess what? You got it wrong. It actually does the opposite of what they claim religion does. Now, um, this is not like a proof for God. This is not the reason we have the mitzvahs, but that's a, that's a pretty nice outcome. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's nice to know. And, and, and fundamentally, it's because people are, we're, we're what's called being eusocial, where we're not individuals. Like, there are certain creatures that exist on this planet that they, they don't have an a sense of individuality, like uh, ants. Ants are a great example. Termites, they're a great example. 
God you know, just the, People, people, they, I mean, there's like, you know, there's a measure that says you should, you know, work like an ant. Well, there's something to that. Well, how does an ant work? There's a, there's a, there's a, uh, you, you do a better job in life by becoming a super organism. That's what being eusocial is. It's like, you know, you think about all the different uh, cells in your body. Well, each one's a living creature from, bio, from a biological perspective. What makes you up? Bazillions of living cells, Wait, you know. You say being a why, you do a better job than like being, being a, a super or... organism. So it's like just like you have a bunch of cells that make you up, and each one is a living creature. Well, you're a living creature too in the body of the Jewish people. This is this this is the the basis I think of the idea of of um, why it is someone can be yotze another person in Kiddush. Why is it you can, you can uh, uh, um, have a chalik in a person's schar? They did something good, you helped out a little bit, or you know, maybe you should have given tochacha and you get a little bit of their, of their onesh. It's because the Jewish people are a super organism. Those are the halachic nafkaminas. The time we have, I kind of go on a little bit of a tangent. Because without trust, that's pretty bad. Like, it's an understatement saying that's bad. What's bad? Lacking trust in society. And this, unfortunately, is, is a, um, a matzav that we, we currently are living out. Like anti Semitism? No, 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 worse than that. I'm talking anti human. No, this is worse than anti Semitism. Like, this is the first time in human history where it, the idea of God does not bind people. We're living in a time they call it postmodernism. Everybody can create their own truth. You know, and mm-hmm. and, it, and that's that's very much the the, the zeitgeist of the, of this particular um, 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 time in history, the flavor of this moment in history. And there were two. One was a philosopher, and one was a psychologist, who basically predicted the horrors of the twentieth century. One was Nietzsche. 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 He was a moral philosopher. He was the, he, he, his, his claim to fame was the declaration that God is dead. And a lot of people, if you've heard this quote, a lot of people actually use this quote as kind of like, you know, getting back to the new atheists. They use it as like a, a, a rally cry. God is dead and, you know, long live reason or something like this. But Nietzsche did not mean it that way. What, what Nietzsche was actually writing about when he, when he was describing this idea of the death of God, with the death of God within European society, was that God was something that bound everybody together and gave people's life meaning. Now, okay, forget that. Is Christianity Bodhisattva? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But most, I can't think of a single Rishon who would not at least admit, like, the world got better, that the Jewish idea of a single God spread across the whole planet like a wildfire. Like, Rev. Harish has a lot of good things to say on this. Now, the Rambam also describes this idea. Like, that was good for people, you know? Like, but I think it was good because of this point, not just because it's a correct idea, which in of itself is good, but it enabled people to, to know 
how to live and gave them a purpose and bound people together. And so what Nietzsche was actually prophesizing was he was saying, look, okay, Christianity is failing. And what people are going to have to do in order to survive, literally survive, is they're going to have to create their own moral code and they're going to have to basically become super philosophers in order to literally survive. And in his writings predicts how you know, most people are not going to be able to do this and predicts the horrors of the 20th century. He literally names communism as being an idea a hundred years before it became a serious political philosophy. Named it as being one of, the, one of the primary causes for the future death that will be seen. Like, it was, reading his words are like, they're, they're, they're shockingly accurate. And that's exactly what happened. 600 million people buried underneath the value of fairness gone wrong. Buried under a lack of meaning of people trying to figure out how, how are they going to work themselves out in the world. Well, man, were they not bound together. If nothing else, this really, really good idea, this really, really good idea of social, uh, this good social idea of communism ended up dividing people more than anything. And that's, that's something worth to, to stop and ponder is like a lot of really smart people got together and thought, well, what's the best way to make a paradise on earth? What's the best way for people to trust each other and work towards a common good? Great, we got communism. And what did it exactly do? It exactly did the, yeah, it exactly did the opposite. Did they have good goals? Like, did they have a good intention? Originally, but what's what the uh, whenever you do social engineering, number one, <laughs> never do that, you know, because like <laughs> you do not know what you're creating, yeah. but. When you're doing social engineering here, well, there's too many factors to take into account. So, like, like communism works really well in a family. You know, you have to have, make sure that you treat all your kids fairly. That's a good idea. It works really nice in a family. But as soon as it gets big, there's too many factors at play to, to consider. Did it work well for a little bit? No. It fell apart almost like, immediately. Like, the Holocaust. Like, it worked well for the Nazis for a little bit before it went... It didn't work for the Nazis either. They immediately started exterminating people who were mentally ill, and and, and they, the mo they moved. They moved on up. Yeah, that was well. I mean, right? They thought that they were doing good, and yeah. it was because they're trying to do social engineering. They're disconnected from what from what fundamentally binds people, mm -hmm. religion. Well, they end up just murdering everybody. Right. You know, and 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 I mean, the suicidal tendency at the end. It was far. Based on their own beliefs, they thought it was better for the, for the Third Reich to die in flames and everybody, you know, die fighting than, okay, sorry guys, we give up, you know, redo. It's like, that's, that's what we lose when we lose religion. But I wanted to end on this note that, you know, that, it, again, it's, it, with, with the new atheist beliefs that, that are very much in our society today. And, you know, we are the, in many ways, I, I don't use the word lightly, victims of this revolution in society, the death of God that Nietzsche, that Nietzsche declared. Carl, I mentioned the second Carl Jung also described. I mean, his works, in his works, he, desc he describes this problem as there's a very thin layer between social, social insanity there's not so many people standing between that and things being okay. Around the same time, we were seeing as these social changes were going on, there was another researcher, uh, Emily Durkham, 
And what he found, he had a he had a really nice way of thinking about it. And it was boy? yeah, he's he was French, so <laughs> French do things differently. He called it he called this this process anime, which roughly is Latin, which means normalization. Is that that when we cease to try and transcend our reality, when we cease trying to be bigger than what we are, when we cease exploring and trying to 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 live in uh, the, you know the moral truths that we have. What ends up happening is life becomes normal. Like, that's a kick in the gut. And what he found in his research was the more normal life is, the less people are happy. And I'm not trying to sell happiness. Like, life is not... What does he mean by normal? Irreligious. I'm not selling happy. Like, this is not a pleasure principle. But people, people find less satisfaction and meaning in their life. The, there is an increase of suicide. You know, his work, his work on that was revolutionary, bringing that out. And it happens to be, you know, in the 1960s, there was another, that was also another wave where normal, normalness started to increase also. And we saw hikes of suicide. And we see it today. We see it today that that's something which is, again, uh, it's not, it's, I, I'm like, I can't, I can't say it's proven, but man, it's a strong correlation. Like, it's, it's too... It's too, it's too freaky to ignore, let's say, that these things go together. And that what ends up happening is that those societies that become irreligious become the least effective societies on earth. So just kind of recapping, again, that, that, these, that the, 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 the message I wanted to kind of get across today was this idea that being good in the eyes of God enables you to be an individual because it, it man, it gives you a backbone. It allows you to stabilize your life, to confront fear, and to confront it intelligently so you can make good choices. By having a halakhic map of meaning, that's what you get out of it. And it also enables trust. It enables people to see that we're, see that we are similar, we have a common goal, and that this common goal demands that we transcend our normalcy to be better than what we are. That's what it means to be good in the eyes of God in how you treat other people. Thank you.